You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni. We're back after our Pesach, I would say, our pause for Pesach. Uh, and uh, Sam Juni, of course, joins us from Yerushalayim, Yerakadosh. Uh, I'm Avram Kivalevich. Uh Sam, the, uh, I know that uh, in many ways, I guess we would like to uh, put into perspective you know, where we are in the world of Judaism as we, as we stand in both worlds. And one of the, the, the real classic images that we have of this period between Pesach and Shavuot, the image that um, is fueled by the mitzvah of Sfirata Omer, the idea of counting the Omer toward Shavuot, uh, the Rishonim, uh, the Ran and others, uh, quoting Midrashim and other sources, say this is the idea of the Jewish people coming out of Egypt, coming out of Mitzrayim, is a bride that is, that is counting the days before the marriage with their lover, God. And there's parallels to the seven weeks, to the seven days of uh, purity that a woman needs as she's menstruating before she's able to bond with her husband. And the idea being, although there's the collective, is that we, in a sense, are the wife of God, the creator. And although we're all, in a sense, obviously separate and different people, the idea that many of us harbor, and it's reinforced by, I don't know if in Israel you you attended the services, but during Passover, during Pesach, we read the Shir Hashirim, which is this incredible love poem of Shlomo Melech wrote, the love between God and the Jewish people. I'm not teaching you anything here. I'm just setting the table here. All of this is based on the idea that the ultimate relationship is a one-on-one, a monogamous relationship. All of us find in God what can fulfill us. And the way we're able to do that, Doc, is by thinking about the prime relationship of a man and a woman. One man, one woman. The monogamy uh, that Adam and Eve of Adam and Chava and that is a theme that 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 is reiterated over and over again. I don't think everybody has the of finding your zivid, finding your bashert, finding the one for you. And yet we know that Jewish law strictly allows men to have multiple wives. A man can have many wives. Um, we all realize that mostly that doesn't happen, and that has to do with the European uh, harem of Rabbeinu Gershom, which was, uh, you know, Gershom, uh, among with other rabbinic leaders, decreed that this was verboten in the Ashkenazi communities to marry more than one wife. The Sephardic communities, however, continued to have multiple wives. And uh, in Yemen and other places, when the Jews arrived back uh, post uh, you know, 1930, 40, 50, many came to Israel with their multiple wives. Um, so on one end, Sam, we, we, we definitely have this ideal of one husband and one wife living together, hopefully, you know, uh, uh, till 
bonded even in according to the Kabbalistic tradition, even in in, in Gan Eden, even in their future. And yet we know that's halachically that's not the case. Halachically, had it not been for the uh, the ruling, men can have multiple wives. And indeed, and this is what I wanted to, to get you into. Uh, this was the case here in uh, in, in the Western world. Uh, our our good friends out in Utah and Idaho and other places, uh, the old Mormons uh, practice polygamy. And, 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 and an article that appeared over the last month in the New Yorker by Andrew Solomon uh, was a, a, a very uh, interesting overview of the fact that polygamy is, is, is making a comeback. Um, because once the Supreme Court rules that the biblical idea of Adam and Eve is not prime and that it could be Adam and Adam or Eve and Eve, both of those could be marriages, uh, it doesn't have to conform. Why the next step is what is being pushed for in a legislative fashion for society uh, to allow this. And, and of course, it's much bigger uh, than just polygamy. It also um, involves uh, the other aspect. And of course, the other thing is the polyamorous relationships, which, of course, although they don't see themselves uh, together with the uh, polygamists out in Idaho and in Utah, um, in many ways, they're sort of fighting for uh, a similar thing, which, you know, in a polyamorous relationship, there isn't necessarily a, you know, a husband who has his many wives, but you have these units, which are fluid uh, of men and women together, and they have decided that they represent a family. And uh, whether one of the of, of the members impregnates another and a child is born, they would all like to be considered in these polyamorous units. They like all to be considered parents and everybody who's there should be given the tax benefits and the social benefits of a, uh, you know, a, a, of a family. Now, you know, you know, and I know that uh, from where you're coming from, both of these uh models, whether it's the polygamous one, which again is sanctioned by the Torah, although not necessarily um, recommended, but it's definitely sanctioned and understood by the Torah, or um, you know, the, the polyamorous one, really doesn't fit into the constructs that, 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 that you were raised in as a, as, a, as a student of psychology, does it? Right, right, right. So let, let me just um, try to do a little bit of a sketching of where I can go with this based on my, on my knowledge. Let me just say my knowledge. My, my book knowledge comes very much from Floyd. There's no question about that. My, my clinical experience with this comes from several sources. Um, I, I've worked closely with Native Americans who, of course, do have all kinds of polyamorous ideas, including, including polyandry, which is the converse of polygamy, which is one woman with many men. So I, I've done some work there, and I'm familiar with their... Um, Weltanschauung, so to speak. Um, I've done considerable work with the Bedouins, where polygamy is even sanctioned currently by the Israeli government. And we've done detailed analyses with the Black Hebrews, which is a sect originating from Chicago, mostly in Demona, also in other places, where, where I mean, widespread bigamy is, is you know, five wives, six wives, seven wives, if you can afford it. They have that kind of system as well. So I know clinic, that's where my clinical stuff comes from. But the, the knowledge base is basically Freudian. So let me just do a quick 
Freudian, um, no, you know what, I, I can't resist this. Let me just do something about the Bible, okay? And I just want to mention that when you look at the patriarchs, I mean, the um, Avram had Hagar, and there it's clear that it was, shall we say, at least ideally, a monogamous relationship with Sarah, and then Hagar was brought in as a surrogate just for having kids, but not for having a relationship. And then Yitzchak wasn't involved at all with that. And then Yaakov really went at it big time. But if you look at it historically, he really intended to have just one wife. And then he got duped. And basically, he was waiting for his real wife, so to speak. And uh, Leah was at least emotionally demoted to, you know, non-primary. And then you had the two other wives who were straightforward concubines and brought in the surrogate simply because um, the... Um, the original two wives wanted to have more children, and this was their way of having children. So I just wanted to mention okay, that. Okay, well, you know, again, just to push back, you're right. Uh, and, and this is sort of reflected a little bit in the tradition of who's buried in the Morris Machvela, right? You have the four couples. It's not, you know, there isn't a, a, a place in the Morris Machvela for, for the, the trio, like the triage. It's, it's Adam and Eve, uh, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, uh, uh, Yitzchak and Rivka, and uh, Yaakov, incredibly, and Leah, because of course Rachel doesn't survive. And he's turning over in his grave, saying, "Oh boy, you know, I wish Rachel. I wish it was Rachel next to me." <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> well, it's, it's the last the, thing that he says. He has, it's the, it's he has the, the, transportation problems all the way. From well, the, that it's, the, it's it's. I, I believe it's his very last words before he dies. The very last words before Yaakov dies is Rachel, right? The last things he talks about is is is, is sure. where is where he sure. buried her. Um, you know, it, it's, so okay. Yeah, it's actually again my mistake, uh, Sam. Actually, he he mentions, of course, to Yosef earlier about uh, the death of Rachel. But actually, the last thing he actually says, by the way. Um, is about Shum Kavarti Um And the last words he says is B'nai Chais, but he actually does mention Leia at the end. So it is his last words. I think he does come in terms of it. But okay, I'll agree with you that there is this motif of one man and one woman. And I mentioned that earlier in terms of these, of Shlomo and about counting the Omer and it's us with God. But again, the Torah clearly sanctions when it talks about in, in, in Mishpatim, uh, when it gives the rules of taking the second wife, when it talks about a first wife who starts as sort of a maid type figure, it says you take a second wife, what you're trying to do is provide for her as well. She isn't considered a second class citizen despite your mentality uh, that you'd like to do that. Um, right. So let me, let me do like and, a, 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 and, and similarly, let's talk about at the end of Deuteronomy and the Dvarim where it talks about this issue of having multiple wives, achas ahuva achas anua, right? It mentions having these two wives, similar to what you talked about, about Yaakov and Rachel. And of course, what the Torah demands is to rid yourself of that hatred and realize that your oldest child, who actually is a byproduct of the hated wife, uh, needs to be considered the Bechor totally and completely. So the Torah knows that you're going against the grain. Look, David HaMelech famously had many wives, as did many other figures that are in the Torah. The Torah doesn't necessarily, um, uh, you know, Andrew Solomon, I think, incorrectly uh, wrote uh, in the article that in the New Yorker that, that we, we both read that the word for the, in the Torah for a second wife is tzara, 
which he says means the same word for troubles, the tsaris, which I think Solomon is getting his Hebrew and his Yiddish conflated. In many ways, as you know, as a Yiddish thinker and speaker, Hebrew words have a different meaning in Yiddish than they do in actual Hebrew. Tsaris, yes, in Yiddish means pain and troubles. In Hebrew, what it means is constriction. What it means is a situation that is not as expansive as you'd like it and demands the discipline to deal with it. You are bitsar. It's, it's, it's actually narrow. That's what the word sadi resh means. And therefore, even the word mitzrayim, of course, or mitzarim, means boundaries and borders that limit what you can do. Having a second wife is sanctioned, but it definitely limits you in terms of what you're able uh, to accomplish. So, yes, there is a certain ideal, but in no way does the Torah, I believe, uh, um, dissuade you from, from doing this. But go ahead. What I want to do is pull this into my areas of expertise so I can flower metaphorically and just also do some critiques from that particular area about the poly, uh, um, polyamorous relationship. So I want to start with Freud and and. Others have picked up the same motif as well. Uh, and that is basically that um, what is the root of the drive towards a relationship with another person of the other gender is the Oedipal um, uh, conflict. And essentially what that means is that from Freud's perspective, the standard unit, and again, this, this is based on the egocentricity because of where he grew up and what he saw as right and wrong and how he saw biology as influencing evolution, but be that as it may. So a the ideal family as it should be, and I put should in quotation marks, is a man and a woman in a romantic close relationship. And then a child is born into that relationship and the child sees that and becomes desirous and maybe even envious of being part of that relationship. And that is ideally, or at least in fantasy done, by replacing the same gender um, parent and taking his or her place in the relationship. That then induces all kinds of fears of retribution. Some of it is actually explicit in Viennese society. Other times it's implicit. So what they do is they sublimate their desired solution by choosing someone who resembles the parent of the same gender and they're going to replicate the relationship, basically, where they assume the um, role of the parent of the same gender. And this other person is their way of acting out, neurotically even, the relationship that they would have liked to act out with the other person. It's that, a, fa- a fantasy version of their, yes, uh, of their mother, so precisely, to speak. Precisely, precisely. Or their father. Don't phrase it just in terms of men. There's an electric okay. comp- which is okay. So that's the overall formula. Now, um, going back to the to, to the core relationship between the man and the woman, what's entailed in that relationship is basically a form of um, a new identity. In other words, instead of being identified as you as you in a unit, you're identified with the other person. And Freud got this from metaphorically interpreting what the Torah says: they shall be as one. And that means that basically they consider themselves a unit. So like I know there's some Musser stories about Elio Lapian who goes to the doctor and his wife has a, a problem with her knee and she says, we have a knee. 
Okay, so like, I know these days people have converted that where they say, even my kids, we are pregnant. And I say, we're both pregnant, so, you know, <laughs> this is interesting. But so, that's how they think. They think of themselves and I, as an identified unit. And in, in a sense, that is the idealization of a romantic relationship that people actually feel identified. The other person is part of me. They hurt for the other person as much as they hurt for themselves. They care for the other person as much as they care for themselves. That is kind of the overall formula, which is heavily tinged by sexuality. It's not quite clear how the sexuality figures into that, other than perhaps being as something they share, something that's secret. It's, it's not clear, by the way, clinically, why the sexuality matters. And in fact, many people have, you know, when you look at the idealized relationship of David and Yonderson, if you don't want to take the um, gauche interpretation that actually sexual uh, events were going on there, there is something called a very close relationship. Sometimes that seems like um, a substitute. You know, it's actually not like that. It's a substitute for a relationship between the yeah, man and the you know, I know you don't call yourself a sociologist, but Freud sort of prided himself for knowing, you know, what was going on in all the sciences. Freud was obviously not ignorant that net, outside of places where Christianity had entrenched itself, that this was, as you know, from your own discoveries with the Bedouins, that it was very common to have uh, polygamous yeah. relationships. You know, why did he, you know, why did he believe, again, because he was positing something that was true for all mankind, right? He felt that he yes. had discovered the secrets of all humans. And yet there was, there was a, a huge amount of people that Freud knew that were not uh, ascribe, you know, they were not ascribing to this, to this model. How do you, uh, you know, he's your hero. How do you explain that? Freud is my hero, but even heroes can have faults. He was a chauvinist and he was aware of those things, but his idea was they are mutations, they are distortions, they are detours away from biological mandates and they're all going to crumble. And And that's why they don't have cars and don't have trucks and don't have atom bombs because they're primitives. (laughs) I mean, it's like the missionaries' attitudes towards primitive um, Third third world um, civilization. He was a chauvinist. So he said, no, that's not. Look, he was aware of homosexual relationships, right? And some of them were quite intense. And even in the, look, go through the literature, the Greek literature, the Roman literature, homosexual relations. And yet he felt he can just dismiss them, you know, just with the back of his hand without a problem, because that's not what he knows to be the ultimate truth as it was practiced in Vienna. Whatever, look. He has a sport. So, so, well, let me ask you something. If somebody is part of, let's say, those Bedouins and some of the uh, uh, Native Americans, are, are they not going to suffer the Oedipal complex and things like okay. that? Well, let me tell you. So, so now you're on my home turf. I have no problem with this. The relationships in the bigamous family, only the polyamorous family, are sufficiently, I mean, are... Pre- I'm sorry, are significantly deficient in terms of the human quality of the relationship and primarily because of the asymmetry. So let's put it this way. If you have a polyamorous polyamorous relationship where men and women are relating to many other people, there is no real sense of closeness there at all between any two people. There's a closeness, but you have to understand, jealousy is pre-programmed biologically going back a long time, you cannot feel close to someone else when you know that the person is sharing the same degree of intimacy and caring with someone else as well. 
I'm talking about um, peer-to-peer. I'm not talking about parent-child relationship. That's a whole different uh, podcast. We can talk about that. But you cannot. You are ultimately jealous and you don't feel related. Now, um, if you have a monogamous relationship, ideally each one can feel this is part of my life. This is a new entity. We are a unit. But once you introduce the asymmetry, right? You introduce the asymmetry, we'll say um, gender A, who in this case is a man, in our case of polygamy, it's a man, can have many such relationships. I can only have one. That stilts it. We're a unit only from one perspective. And if you look at the other way, we're not a unit. That's quite disturbing. I need to throw in here, I don't have the exact citation, but it's a very well-known study. Maybe you know the author. Um, where they found that in terms of infidelity among couples, women are most disturbed if the husband develops a close emotional relationship with another woman. Men are most disturbed if the women have a sexual encounter with another man. And it's profound because the men are not concerned about the women having a confidant. I mean, I have women patients, okay? They're very close to me. I never had a, a, a male guy threaten me on the phone or come come after me. I mean, they know I'm not sexually involved, but yet women sometimes, and I've had this as patients, they are not disturbed. Okay, the, the husband is, is much more sexually driven, especially, especially when they get towards menopause. The, the husband is much more sexually. Yes, he goes to a hooker occasionally. Yes, he does that with a secretary, but it's totally not emotional. And when they, sometimes the man's response would be, it was not emotional at all. It was purely physical. And that is, fu- no, I shouldn't say it's fine, but it does not become a bone of contention. So have you, let me ask you something, since you mentioned yourself and you said you haven't had one thing, have you had situations where a wife uh, is disturbed that her husband is able to talk to you in such an intense manner, but not able to um, to speak to her? Because no, it should run no. both ways, right? No, I haven't had that. And in fact, what I've been working on is telling them, okay, let's see how we can get this going. Why is he more comfortable with me than with you? And one reason is because I never come back and say, whoa, that's horrible. We can't do that. I listen. So maybe you should listen some more. I don't want to give you all my free tricks out. But yes, no, no. It, it, you don't have an issue where somebody comes with a shotgun after a male therapist. It does, unless if they're paranoid and they accuse them of having a sexual relationship. That's when it gets heavy. Right, but, you, but, but what you said before was what women are most jealous of is the fact that her husband's emotional needs are taken care of by yeah. another woman or another person. And, and in that way... Well, okay, so I have to say that in terms of the, uh, you know, the linkage of sexuality with heterosexuality, at least in the major part, this is going to, this is going to change as we speak, but at least since that's the, the norm, then it goes along those lines that it's seen as competing with the relationship. But what I just want to say is that you can't have an asymmetrical unit, so to speak, okay? So in a sense, and, and think of it this way, if you come up with the typical polygamous relationship, what we're basically saying is that the woman has to be totally devoted and, and designated for the man, and the man doesn't. What does this tell the woman about the relationship? The man is not devoted to her, right? It's, it sets something up, which basically makes many women think in a polygamous relationship that they are there to service the husband sexually. 
but not emotionally. Uh, I need to throw in one other thing. What I discovered in, in Bedouin and especially in the Black Hebrew um, uh, um, societies, which is something that's stressed in that New Yorker article, is that there is a kind of kinship and bonding that occurs between the women and the family, which substitutes for the emotional relationship with the husband. They actually become like, like a... Like sisters. No, but it's much more than sisters. That almost exchangeable. Like, these are our kids. There isn't an exchange. And um, sometimes it's really ridiculous. I remember at the Black Hebrews, we came across people, but again, where they are the ones who get another wife for the husband. Right, they will find, but you know, you say it's ridiculous and you say it's, it's, it's asymmetrical, but <laughs> it, it, can't it be healthy? Can't it no, be let, healthy? Me say, let me say why I said it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because it's done for very practical considerations. Somebody wants to have time to get a college degree and they can't do it when they're taking care of the kids. So they figure if they get somebody else in, they can take care, take, taking care of the kids every other week and they can pursue their studies. So it's kind of, to me, it seems that marriage is something that's so much more than having time off from babysitting so you can do things or having to do less laundry. And that's what it comes to. But essentially, it's almost they form their own um, uh, family and their own close relationships where the husband is merely one who provides the housing and provides the uh, the food. It's interesting. It's interesting, but I wouldn't call it a um, amorous. Amorous means love. I think that's a misnomer. It's not. It's it means people being having uh, having the opportunity to get their physical needs done whenever they want to, or their physical whims done whatever they want to. But to call it a a loving unit, we're not set up that way. At least from a Freudian perspective, we're set up for a dyadic kind of love relationship. And when you choose the animals, the animals are an only a good analog for ways for sexual relationships to happen. There are no amorous relationships, at least not as far as we know it, among animals. So that's not such a good model. Well, you know, again, if we go back to something you, you cited earlier about, about Yaakov, about Jacob and, and his wives, uh, they're, they're, the, the Bible and the Medrash clearly understands that Yaakov's love in his heart, although he somehow comes to terms with Leah at the end of his life, was with Rachel. But he, sure. but we know that he did his job. We know that he spent time with each of them. That he actually... yeah, but that's his job. So he also did his. You know, he probably was a filing clerk, and he put the mail in the right places. His heart wasn't in it. His heart was. But the idea, but the idea of romantic love, although it's definitely in Shira Shirim, is not necessarily something which which we even know historically was considered a sine qua non of, of any relationship. We talked right. about your parents. We talked about my parents. I mean, we talked about the fact that that you know, we, we we are sort of like brainwashed in a way, or not brainwashed, but we've been uh, it's been put into our minds that unless you find this type of romantic, loving, totally giving ideal, you're less of a human. But maybe those kids that are part of those um, those Mormon families, maybe they actually grow up better, better, more. They have less of a chance of getting burnt, but I don't know if that's better. You know, if you invest nothing, you don't have much to lose. So, of course, there's not the, much. I would assume money. they consider all the huge amount of children around all their brothers. There isn't the sense of, like in the Smothers Brothers, mom loved you best, right? There's, there's sort of like a, like a commune that they're being raised. Yeah. And, 
and yes. it's it's a biological curiosity who mothered who. I know that Andrew Solomon points it's out not even relevant. It's not even considered that's right, so relevant. That's right. Each one nurses the other child. Is it, but it, but you see, but the, what they have now is then a clan identification, but no relationship that's unitary just with another person. And according to Freudian theory, that's not the icon of the way. <laughs> okay, but but but. but 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 you are a practicing uh, uh, you are a practicing psychologist. You are seeing people with, and, and you definitely see people who are who are frust- who are frustrated in terms right. of they're never growing out of the Oedipal relationship the way they should have. That's not going to happen in the polygamous relationship, right? Right. But it's not going to happen because they're not even engaged in the whole business. I don't know if that's better off, you know, to not even try. Or, of course, if you're that pe- destined to fail, you might say, okay, it's better that you not be grow up with the whole situation to begin with. Again, presuming that it's not uh, evolutionarily, biologically pre-programmed, uh, which I, I'm not... Com- that's another argument of Floyd, which is not... It doesn't mesh so well with the rest of it. Because okay, it let, let, me, throw you, let me throw you the words of another Jewish provocateur, a great uh, rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Rabbi Yaakov Emden, of course, famously argued, although it's probably not correct historically, that... Um, the prohibition was not, uh, it wasn't just that Rabbeinu Gershom and others saw that this was one of the things we need to correct from the Torah. Now, the Gemara Nebamas does say that don't get another wife if you can't support that. Um, and, but many people have seen Gershom's uh, enactment, the enactment that he made, was a way of sort of like correcting some of the imbalances that the Torah left dangling. Emden actually argues very interestingly, that this was in response to the Christian uh, calumny against the Jews, that the Jews are barbaric and they're having more than one one wife. So in order to align ourselves that we shouldn't have the quote-unquote chilol Hashem, that we are this, like you explained before, Freud's barbarians, they decided to enact this sort of a way to to uh, that the Christians shouldn't look at us as being subhuman. But Emden actually uses this sort of historical point to argue for opening up marriages and allowing, he believes, a pilegesh. You know, he, he this is a, every single yeshiva bacher knows one tshuva siyavitz. That's, of course, the tshuva where he talks about the positive aspects of, of a man having a pilegesh. Um, and, and this, of course, isn't the second wife. This is actually a woman who is there to service him sexually. And, and, and this we actually see throughout rabbinic literature, of, you know, of, of people having pilagshim. And, you know, it didn't seem to, you know, Emden actually feels that it's a healthy thing because he believes it will result in less divorces and less frustrations. Well, you see, he, I, I like this, the substitute that the, uh, the, um, the Mormons use the term it's a biblical marriage. Biblical marriage means the marriage as the Bible wanted it. And when you think of it, um, the formula lo tova adam yos levado uh, is talking about a man. It's not talking about a woman. The concern is not for the woman. It's almost like, I mean, this is why we call, I mean, most people call the Bible paternalistic, that it's concerned for a man. The women are basically props. And that's... Um, quite difficult if you want to have a romantic um, 
love relationship as it's conceived in Western society, that cannot be done when you have the two partners at unequal footing. They have to be equal. And polygamy is the antithesis of having symmetry, which means basically, if anything, this is a male-oriented way, if you want to put it coarsely, just like it, he needs to have cars and he needs to have a meal and he needs to have a woman. But right, for the so- woman, it's not oriented for the woman. I mean, right. I've often wondered when they say he shouldn't minimize her needs. And I'm wondering, are we concerned about her needs here? Or is this just kind of a chesed of some sort? Okay, that so marriage is not designed for her needs, but marriage is designed for his. Well, this it's might. Th- Okay, this might have to do with this very interesting theological halachic debate of how do we know, you know, the, uh, the the responsibility of a man to be involved physically with his wife? And this is a question: Is it from the word she'er, or is it from the word ona? Right. This is the question: What does she'er mean? So some say she'er just means food. Others say she'er means closeness, cuddling. I mean, you know this in your in, in your work that a, a woman would want to cuddle, right? She just wants the husband to, to embrace her. Not no, they want, they want the closeness more than the penetration. The penetration, yeah, right? And you have women that would probably say, you know, I just want someone to curl up with at night, someone who can hold me and someone that I could feel close yeah. to, which, again, is, 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 it can be and accomplished. I would posit that men have the same need, but that somehow... It gets um, just overpowered by some other issues, and then they actually miss out on it. But that the need is there as well. Again, from a Western perspective, I don't know if I would say that from a from a perspective like a Middle Eastern perspective, because definitely Bedouins will not admit to it. The Black Hebrews will not admit to it. They don't say it's there. Well, well, again, if if you say that the man's need to have a sexual union is just like a bodily function and you, and you disconnect it from the, the, the fireworks and romance and the, the, the sense of the, the, the incredible orgasmic idea of where you're going in this, then you could actually take jealousy out of the picture, right? It would seem. And, and, and look, and, 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 and I think that's probably if jealousy has to do with possession. It's mine. And, and that has that's not a sexual idea. It's just like if somebody would mess around with your cows. Okay. Or, or a wagon. You get after them. You don't mess horse. Horse thieves. Right. So I, I would assume that the poly, the polygamists are able to walk this line and be able, first of all, again, whether we talk about the Pilagshim which theory, which is what Emden is talking about, or the polygamist situation, which was in the Torah, I would think there would be a way that that could be, uh, it could be handled in a way that you don't have uh, a, a sense of, of, of jealousy and, uh, and, and, and a, a rebelliousness against what they see as uh, the man uh, you know, being this chauvinistic, really, let's say it, Sam, misogynistic person who's just using women for what, you know, and not treating them as human beings. I would assume there is a way that that, uh, that, that can be handled. I don't know if the evidence... I want to point misogyny is, is a buzzword for me that disturbs me a lot. I would just like to modify that. Misogyny implies that you actually 
want to harm and that you hurt women, I would say like a disinterest in their welfare. Let's put it that way. Misogyny is a little bit too strong of a term, but there's no a disinterest and basically just a feeling, okay, I have to put in my time or my pretensions just in order to be able to get satisfaction. Uh, okay, so, you know, obviously as a, as a rabbi, I can never discuss the polyamorous option as anything that can be sanctioned or, or, or even suggested mm-hmm. as with any positivity. But you, as a psychologist, can talk about it. What do you think? I, I sent you the article. I know you read it about yeah. polyamorous. And I was very, I don't know, amused. It piqued my interest. How, how, much, how many Jews were involved in a lot of these polyamorous relationships? Well, uh, because Jews see it as a function of removing what they consider to be arbitrary restrictions based on okay. some a priori notion, sure. Okay, so how in a in the polyam? Let's just talk about it. Although it's totally theoretical, in this program, in no way sanctions or even is indicating that anyone should consider getting involved in that. But do you see the psychological effects of living in a polyamorous relationship? Do you see? Yeah, those? I, because I'm a devout Freudian, uh, without a chauvinism, I hope, and I believe that it damages the capacity to have a genuine interpersonal. Intimacy. I'm not talking about sexuality. You can't be interpersonally intimate when there is no feeling of saying, this is a person that I connect to, rather than just being an overall group. It reminds me of certain cultures where people don't even identify themselves as a person. They identify themselves as a member of the clan, or as a gerer, or as a pupper, or as a visionator. And to the point is that the relevance is in who am I? What am I? What's my, in certain cultures, even names are not relevant. Just tell me who you are. And I think that's what's doing it. There is no, the relationship, I, I, I'll i tell you, I found, I've no, not spoken, I've read about personal reports about husbands, Mormons with several wives, and they're very devoted. And I think they're devoted towards supplying the people's physical needs or even emotional needs. But again, the asymmetry means I have many others like this. You can't have that kind of feeling. It's just not there. So I don't think it's beneficial at all if we go from the Western model that one is expected to have an intimate, the capacity to have an intimate relationship with a person rather than somebody supposed to be ecstatic about his group membership, his group identity. I don't condone it. I I think it it would make for really horrible um, um, one-on-one experiences. And if you believe in the theory of object relations, which says that relationships are really an inherent need of people. In other words, if I have everything I need, according to object relations theory, I still need to have a relationship, an intimate emotional relationship. And you don't have that when you have, all you have is the group, so to speak. So I, th- I think it's a, an inical to what I would call healthy development. Yeah. Let me ask, with, with, what, with the disclosure that I am biased towards a Floydian Okay, model. yeah, let's end this with just one sort of related idea. And, and we know that, you know, we talk about the development of what's considered the, you know, the Romeo and Juliet, Autumn and Chava, you know, um, we, 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 both of us are aware that throughout uh, European history and Christian history, and even in, as we find in the Torah and in Chazal, that there was many times a, uh, although the Gemara says, don't tell a young man to marry an older woman, um, we don't find 
and, and we do want to sort of like equate the husband and wives in terms of age, we know that in reality, many times there was a huge age gap and a difference between husbands and wives. Many child brides were married off to men uh, many years their senior. Um, this was this was this was common, uh, and it was common again. The, the Torah even uh, descri- deals with it, obviously with Ruth and Boaz. What what's your feeling? Do you feel that um, uh, you know a, a couple that has a twenty or twenty five year difference um, is is or, or a, a girl who's just barely out of her teens? Do, would you argue against? Uh, a relationship with a man 20 years her senior? So I would argue at it in terms of a healthy model, which me, healthy to me means a real suppression of the uh, Oedipal conflict, which is then expressed in a very socialized, appropriate way. In a sense, marrying an older person is almost almost a realization of the Oedipal misresolution. I'm going to, from the girl's perspective, I'm marrying my father. And it's, by the way, they call him daddy. They do in a loving way, but it's clear that they have not really distorted the Oedipal situation enough to transfer it onto somebody who is peer-related. That's not healthy. In other words, again, I'm sorry, this is Freud Jr. talking. Part of being able to function as a healthy human being is getting rid consciously of the Oedipal dream and coming up with something supposedly new, even though anybody who knows psychoanalysis can read through the similarity of this relationship and the original relationship with the parent, but it's different enough. It's the same age, it's no longer an authority figure, etc., etc. If you marry an older person, it's very hard to get out of the actual sensation that you have violated the Oedipal, the oh, Oedipal oh. injunction. And you will feel guilty and you will come to somebody like me with a lot of bundles of checks to say, let's try to solve this. But it's trouble you got into into yourself. Okay, so think of of perverted families. Think of Woody Allen of actually marrying a daughter or incestual families in certain um, uh, kingdoms. They would do that back in, 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 in the Eastern cultures. Wow. Okay. Well, would you say, though, just again, pushing the envelope here, would you say that in the case I just told you, this is a a young girl in her 20s or just barely out of her teens, as we said. What about a a, a woman in her 30s marrying a man who's, you know, in his 50s or approaching 60? Would you say there it was also it would also be an imbalance and would be uh, a recipe for emotional and psychological problems? Yes, especially because there's an implicit, it's, it's ridiculous, but there's an implicit power differential based on age. It's childish, it's not logical, but sure, this is somebody who's more experienced, more knowledgeable, more something. Once somebody is more based on demographics, that causes an imbalance. It's the same asymmetry, but now it's not between people, it's within the people, within the couple itself. So yeah, I don't, uh, I don't go for it. I don't go for it. And look, for that reason, if you look around, you'll rarely find Shiduchim going the other way. Marrying an older woman, which is what the, what the Torah puts injunctions on, you don't find it that way because it doesn't overlap with the power differential. Women are just, because of sociocultural, like millennia of oppression, 
don't see themselves as the power figure. So if you marry an older woman, you're hardly enacting the Oedipal conflict. I don't know what you're enacting, but it's not the Oedipal conflict. Well, again, as you know, as, as someone who married an older woman, uh, and I think we're, we talk about both of ourselves, right? I think we're, yeah, both but of we our have, wives are older, older than us. a couple of years. We're not talking older a couple of, you know, decades. I, I understand. So, so you would say the limit is probably seven years, eight years? Where, where, where do you... Where... I would say that you're, you're tickling the problem even with one day difference. But I wouldn't call it of clinical significance unless we get into some, you know... Double digits, at least. Uh-huh. So, because you, you know, of course, that, and let's end this discussion here with the Haredi Shevelt, that there has been a push from the Haredi Shevelt for girls to marry boys younger than them, because as you know, there's supposedly yeah. a, a shidduch crisis, where these older girls aren't finding uh, boys, boys, yes. and they, and I think there's even financial incentives that in the in the in the Haredi world that they're giving for girls to marry boys that I, are younger. I, I'm I'm aware of that, but I can tell you that I find that quite consistent with the Haredi orientation that they're not marrying for a close emotional <laughs> relationship. That's not the function, uh, unfortunately. Well, still, you know, I, I would assume, you know, that there are you know, that's what they would encourage, which is, as you say, but maybe they themselves say a five-year or six-year difference. Look, I, I, you know, I talk about this with my daughter, my single daughter. Where does she draw the line? She's going to be 25 in November. You know, should she be concerned when there's an imbalance? At what age? I don't know. I think the the rules are not cut and dry. And uh, And that's, Right, because you're not dealing in a vacuum. There are also other issues as well. So then you have to balance it. And one of the things I'll tell you when you balance it is not to be a Meshuggah and a Freudian like me. I mean, <laughs> see it as an issue, but don't see, see it as colossal. By me, it's the end of the world. You know, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. There are other religions around. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.